you've got to play the game. It's like, great, I want to I want to be a baseball player. I want to hit home runs, but I hate running bases. Really? No, you have to run the bases. That could be the stupidest thing ever. You cannot criticize it. You cannot fight it. And you can't decide that you're going to sit out and not do it. Play the game. Win. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Berkeley born, go Bears, into an entrepreneurial home. Dr. Carla Pugh knew she wanted to be a doctor at the age of five and a craniofacial reconstructive surgeon at the age of 14. But since childhood, she was also a maker before that term even existed. Handy with tools and determined to fix stuff in life and later in medicine. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Metadata for their sponsorship today. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. So, David. Yes, Lisa. Oh, my God. Have you ever (laughs) considered yourself a maker? Do you create stuff, use your hands to make stuff? You know, it's funny because whenever I see, you know, a tool butte who always, you know, tweets endlessly about, you know, the, you know, oh, and maker's coming to uh, San Mateo. I always feel like sort of a poser because I, I don't feel like a maker. But on the other hand, growing up, I loved, you know, my dad and I, we built all these model airplanes. I built model rockets. So, mm-hmm. um, but they were kind of from kits. So I kind of, you know, pseudo maker, I guess. But, um, uh, you know, and we bought our kids, you know, like a 3D printer, you know, which, you know, we use a little bit. Um, but um, I uh, maybe a ma- I guess a maker wannabe. <laughs> I did a lot of jewelry making for a really long time. Oh, really? But I've kind of lost, you know, lost. Very Berkeley. Yeah, I know, right? I, I haven't been doing it lately, which uh, mostly is because my eyesight's gotten worse, and it makes it harder to do. But um, but it was so much fun. But you got it's the like gene. really takes you away. I, I, well, yeah, sort of. Um, but I, you know, at home I. I um, mostly make uh, calls to people to fix things. You like the joke about making reservations? Exactly. That'd be me. (laughs) Dr. Carla Pugh is one of those people who does a lot of things. She started helping her mom even at age two, filing computer punch cards with her sister. Today, she's surgeon, entrepreneur, researcher, and educator, and is officially a professor of surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. Go Bears! (laughs) And also director of the Technology-Enabled Clinical Improvement Center at Stanford. But through it all, she loved and continues to love making things work, using tools and making things from scratch. Welcome, Carla. How did this maker thing start? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, thanks to you, Lisa and David, for having me um, on the show. This is exciting to kind of share my experiences with you. Um, I actually don't really know how it started. Uh, Age two, you kind of remember food and you remember toys and things. But I do remember... um, it's really funny. The first thing I remember was my mom giving me a toy stethoscope, and that was the moment of first creativity. I was actually listening to people's ankles in the grocery store. So I was already making up or using tools um, out of the realm of what they're supposed to be used for when I was two. But I think my, my first real experiences um came with glue and rubber bands fixing Barbie dolls. I just the element of creativity and a vision for how things were put together and learning from taking things apart and then translating that toy after toy and then it just expanded. It really it started with toys, fixing toys, 
And kids in the neighborhood would bring their toys to me. I was sort of the neighborhood <laughs> doll fixer. And, it, you know, it wasn't, I would, there was no gender issue because I fixed G.I. Joe as well. I had no issues. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's though a real mindset of when you see things like, oh, you know, you know, here it is. This is something that someone else does or like, you know, it arrives and it's, it's, it's either, you know, works the way it should or it's broken. But it seems you sort of cross that threshold and it's sort of were fearless about, you know, okay, well, I must ha- it must be a way it works. It must be a way you can, um, you know, break it up, break it down and build it up. And it um, looks like, I guess, you uh, did that for your neighborhood. Yes. No, I mean, and, and I, I, it does get you to that point where you feel like you're invincible and you can do everything, especially when there's, you know, success and then people keep coming back. And so you figured surgery. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you said you said at home your uh, your name your nickname is Paula Bunyan. Uh, that's a whole that's a different story. It, the fearlessness and fixing things transcends material. So whether it's human beings, Barbie dolls, or you know the hundred foot redwood that's got a broken branch, yeah, I think I can do some work there. So Paula Bunyan, I had I the bigger the tool, the better. So do you have a of of surgeons? People often say. Um, uh, often correct, but never in doubt. Does that resonate? Uh, exactly. You're exactly so what, right. Never, never in doubt, because where there's a will, there's a way. Um, have scalpel, will travel. So what's the last thing you made from scratch? Wow. I mean, because it does span the gamut. Clothes, everything. I mean, uh, last thing I made from scratch that was of substance, not the everyday fixing thing. Um, wow. Yeah, you have to, I have to think about that. Last thing I made from scratch. Yeah. All right, we'll come back to it. So I love this quote from you. You said to me, your career is a string of serendipitous and magical experiences. And it seems that the first one may have been seeing a movie about Paul Tessier, the craniosurgical reconstructionist when you were a kid. Tell, tell us about that. Wow. So I was in an advanced science class, and my teacher was just awesome. I mean, she she... She took artistic liberty to, to, to educate us. And, you know, in addition to doing the dissections of mouse and pigs and mice and pigs and cats and things like that, she showed us a, a documentary of this famous um, plastic surgeon, Paul Tessier, um, and he was known as the father of craniofacial reconstructive surgery. And he basically did a reconstruction of a young child. Uh, that had a skeletal um, deformity called Cruzon's disease, where the sutures of the skull fuse at the wrong time and then the head grows in an abnormal shape. And the bigger problem with these children is that their eyes are too far apart, even for corrective lenses. So you have to remove um, part of the frontal bone and it's all, so it was a combination of math, geometry, and surgery. And I love math and geometry. And I thought, wow, this is all coming together in <laughs> the fearlessness. Yes, I can do this. I could, you know, take parts of the skull and reconstruct it and add math. And it was just amazing. You were like 14 at the time when you saw this, this, right? And I was completely convinced that that's exactly what I wanted to do, that I could manipulate parts of the human body for the better good. Um, of patient care and, you know, have patients um, immediately after surgery um, have a much better life. Did you ever perform that surgery? Ironically, I did. 
probably, it had to be 15 years later with a surgeon at UCSF who trained under Paul Tessier. I think Paul Tessier passed away by the time I became a surgeon, but I actually got to do that exact operation with someone who trained under him, and it was amazing. And I remember the family. I remember the little boy. Um, wow. Yeah, it was transformative for him and his family. They were in tears. I was in tears. We were all like, wow, this is really exciting. And That's very cool. He was just happy. So you have a really diverse education, Berkeley for neurobiology, Howard University for medical school, Stanford for a PhD in education. I, I think you're the first surgeon known to, to the country to have a PhD in education. Um, how has this diversity of education been an advantage for you? Oh, it's been a huge advantage. I think it just it gives you gives you two major things. It gives you a new lens at which to look at your profession, and it gives you the tools based on hundred years of theory um, and new theories that are based on those older theories um, in terms of how to be strategic in addressing. Um, the problems and moving the profession forward. So a lens and the tools. It, it's just been amazing to to step out of my profession, what I do every day, and step into the role of a qualitative uh, researcher, ethnographer, and look at my field and say, wow, okay, we can do this thing better, and here's the problem. And then I know how the community of physicians and surgeons and practitioners will respond in some way because I know what I deal with. You know, like, you know, there's culture, there's things that we hold on to, there's routine, you know, and we, we have a, <laughs> we have a mode of operation that's agreed upon in terms of our relationship with each other and our patients. Um, and there's just certain things where we build roads around brick walls and roadblocks but that doesn't mean they're the best they could be. And now I see those. So how did your education degree come about? Was that part of the serendipity or was that part of the magic? It, uh, it was a little of both. Um, it was really interesting. I mean, by the time I was a second year resident, um, I was in a program where there was an opportunity to take two years off and do research in a lab. And that's what a lot of uh, my colleagues did. But most of those lab opportunities were... Um, basic science, uh, laboratories, um, or clinical research. There was nothing in education or computer science or technology. And so I started looking around. I started asking. And uh, my my chairman um, of the Department of Surgery at Howard was actually really good friends with a surgeon here at Stanford. And he says, you know, if you're interested in technology, you need to meet, meet, meet two people. You need to meet Bob Chase at Stanford, and you need to meet um, John Scandalakis at Emory. And these guys were considered the fathers of surgical anatomy, and Bob Chase added technology to that, um, doing some of the first 3D images of human anatomy over 25 years ago. And so when I would come home on holiday break or whatever break that I got from my residency, I would meet with Bob Chase and we sort of look through the, all the curricula and majors at Stanford that I could embark upon. And of course, we were initially looking at computer science and, you know, technology and trying to figure this out. And one of the second years that we were meeting uh, and talking about this and just kind of trying to figure out what worked, one of his... Um, anatomy instructor said, oh, now you should look at the School of Education. 
and we both looked at him like, why would I do education? This is technology. So like, well, but your the framework of what you're interested in is education. I know one person, a physician who's gotten a PhD there. Don't don't count them out. And we went and found someone who said, no, this is my alley, an education um, professor whose sole focus is on technology in the classroom. I'm like, there's something there. So had it not been for that one person who came and was walking through the room in our conversation, I'm not sure we would have found it that quickly. And uh, we found someone, so it just worked out. Wow. <laughs> so it wasn't, ju- it was a combination, it sounds like, of both edu- that you pursued your PhD at, at sort of the, even that was um, at the intersection of education and technology. Is that right? It seems like you always bring together so many different things, right? It's uh, was so it was it was wasn't just education, just technology. It was it was sort of the um, the combination of the two. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And that I mean, again, that's once we started talking to the uh, professor in the school of education, then it just became crystal clear. Um, this is exactly what we need. Uh, in the surgical field and medicine as a whole, how do we blend? Oh, medicine as a whole. I mean, one of the things you know, we've we've been privileged enough to have you know Bob Wachter on, um, you know, who you know, we, we, with a lot of talk about quality and about training, and um, <clears throat> you know the opportunities. If you think when one thinks about how folks in every other discipline are sort of trained. You know, it isn't just like see one, do one, teach one. There's a lot more uh, rigorous sort of training and much more hands-on and, and much more actually practicing before you get, to, you know, a chance to really hurt somebody. Um, and I would, it just seems there's incredible opportunities on sort of on the quality side to to, to, to do this. Was, was, was that sort of what drew you, drew you to it or, or was it something different? Well, in the very beginning, it was really my disdain for the medical textbooks, if that's not a strong enough word. So if you think about, and and I'm dating myself, um, of course, I was only five when I was in medical school, but, um, you know, I mean, we, we, we literally learned some of the most complex anatomical relationships and embryology from 2D diagrams in a, in a book. There was no, there was no internet. <laughs> the internet was confined to the military when I was in medical school. I'm in a, in a with a, my assigned book and looking at two pictures of the heart tubes, and I'm supposed to send this together and figure out how the heart tubes unfold or fold into a heart and then sit into the chest. And I'm thinking, this is the dumbest thing ever. I'm supposed to read about something that's dynamic, and I'm supposed to look at two pictures and figure the thing out. I'm like, this is, I don't understand why they think this is appropriate. So I was just, I drew pictures. People love my pictures. People want to buy my pictures because I spent extra time. And I, all this, I realized I was a visual learner. Um, but also that people who weren't visual learners loved my pictures, and they could learn um, more quickly if they really had something that, made sense. And the textbooks for certain topics just didn't do it justice. I think that's really interesting because I think the thing you've most been recognized for is the use of touch or sen- the sensors and and monitors and, and application of touch, which is in particularly focused on places you can't see. So as a visual learner, how did that, how did that come about? So it was. I mean, that... <laughs> There's a direct connection. I've got two very specific stories that just, you know. Let's hear them. 
Uh, so one of them is I'm a second year surgery resident and I'm in the operating room and I'm with a attending and a senior resident and they are doing, we as a team are doing a super pubic prostatectomy, which means that there's an incision above the pubic bone and the surgeon has his hand past the plat, the bladder into the pelvis and he's taking some mass out of the prostate. I can't see anything. Fast forward, this is a surgical training program on the East Coast, very hierarchical, and the medical students or junior residents aren't supposed to talk to the attending. You have to talk to the senior resident. So I'm navigating this social thing all the while I'm having a panic attack because I want to learn and I want to feel what he's feeling. And then I have this epiphany and my, my mind is racing. I'm looking at the senior resident and I'm thinking, how the hell are you learning what he's doing? You can't see it. He's not letting you feel anything. And so I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to risk whatever punishment may be delivered because I'm out of the chain of command and I'm not supposed to be talking. And I just, blurted out from the resident. I was like, how are you learning what he's doing? And the whole operating room went silent and everyone was looking at me. I'm like, okay, great. Just give it to me because I want to know. And the surgeon, he didn't say anything. He just looked at me and he grabbed my hand and shoved it in the pelvis. And he said, you feel that little ball? You feel that little nodule? And I was like, this roly-poly thing. Like, it's because I'm like, yeah. And he's like, that's the thing I'm trying to get out. But pull your hand out quickly because I don't want you to cause any bleeding. And I thought, this is how I'm supposed to learn surgery? I was like, no way. There's got to be a better way. But that was one of the ones that sticks in my head that I'm sitting there for an hour looking at the back of this guy's hand and I'm looking at my junior resident and I'm thinking, how are you going to be an expert at this? And I'm like, this is not right. <laughs> so that was one experience where I'm, I'm wanting to learn. I'm wanting to see what he's doing. I want to feel what he's doing. And I was completely convinced that there's technologies that can help us. And then what was your other story? Yeah. The other one was one, it was in a, from a different perspective. It was one that I actually told on the TED stage with, we had a patient who came in after a major car accident and it was a young girl. She was 14, but she's the size of an adult. And they called me as an adult surgeon into the trauma because her, her heart kept stopping. And I'm like, Oh my God, we have to, we have to open her chest. We have to, there's something wrong in her chest. So I, I have my chief resident who's a rock star open her chest and she got her hands in there and she, you know, she massaged the heart, but she couldn't figure out how to get it from stopping. And then when I put my hands in there, I could feel this big, huge blood clot on the chest wall that was preventing the heart from moving the proper way. And I'm like, okay, give me a scalpel. We have to cut and get this blood clot out. But that's, that was something where I saw her hands go in, her posture was appropriate. So I'm, I'm analyzing her visually, but in that moment, just with the visuals, I couldn't figure out what she was doing wrong. And only when I put my hands in, I could both see and feel something that wasn't readily apparent to all of the physicians and um, healthcare practitioners in the room. And I'm like, there's a blood clot here and you guys can't see it because it's on the other side of the sternum. So, so for our listeners and for me, to be honest with you, how have you tried to solve these problems that you've captured uh, so eloquently here? 
The first step is really if you could capture these critical learning experiences in a simulated environment, you can train everyone. It is putting someone in that situation where you have to use your senses, using your hands to feel things that you can't see, using your hands also to know the difference between what's normal and what's abnormal. And those are the most difficult things to train in medicine. And that's, I consider that the final frontier in healthcare. And right now we have so much technology, both from a simulation environment as well as in the real hospital, that we can bring those experiences to light. So you're using sensors primarily for this. Can you describe some of the use cases where you're applying that technology and the sensors to... Yeah, that, that also brings to the next chapter, because if you look at the simulation industry right now, um, most of them are mannequin-based trainers that don't have sensors in them. And so my same issue with the textbook, I now have translated that issue with the current simulation field in that they don't use sensors to... Uh, bring human action to light. Like right now, I'm wanting to capture data from the experts. And we have force profiles, motion profiles, understanding how the experts navigate these things that the learners can't see or understand. Um, and that's where, that's where touch comes in in a big way, especially in areas where you can't see. Um, what's happening. So this is so captivating to me because, um, so, um, I, you know, I guess when I was doing my, um, and again, this was, you know, um, in medical school, which in this, the third and fourth year of medical school, which I guess were in the uh, late 90s. Is that right? Gosh. Um, the, uh, but the, there was no, the, there was, um, we had like a day, like it was part of our anesthesia day. There was like half a day of simulation with a mannequin, which you're describing as sort of the outdated technology. But actually, that was a huge step up from everything else in the training. Like you, you're supposed to, you learn from like, you know, Socratic or from trailing around your, you know, your residents in general. And it's unbelievable how, you know, and then like you go off and become an intern and have like real responsibility and you don't know what the hell you're doing. I mean, like you've learned it a little bit, but there's not even the basic training. And I thought that the closest experience I had in med school that really was Im impactful on the um, uh, internship was what we did with the simulation, even with a mannequin. And I kind of kept thinking, well, geez, why don't we have, like before med school, like a couple of weeks of training where you actually learn, here are your top 15 internal medicine, you know, intern emergencies, things that you're going to have. And now this is taking it even to the next level using, you know, even the additional modality of, of touch and sensation. Is that right? Exactly. And so, I mean, it, it, I'm so glad that you had that experience yourself and you're saying that because we're still at a point now uh, in medicine where mm, only a few of the even for, for medical school and residency, most of the medical schools all have simulation centers um, and they all have sort of a standard bunch of full body and partial mannequin trainers for certain skills. And a lot of them do have now um, boot camps where you come in, you know, a couple of weeks early and you learn and train these things. Most of those are for the residency programs. Um, and there's now more and more 
residency programs that are requiring simulation, um, oh, that there great. is some training in a simulated environment before you go take care of patients. But I would submit the same as I'm saying. I'm looking to move simulation to that next level and have some continuity in that, again, most of the mannequin trainers and simulators don't have they don't have sensor technology. They don't have an expert database that that sets criterion for the learners in terms of, you know, how do you reach mastery? Let's make this explicit. Let's quantify what it is that the experts do such that the trainees can have some explicit goal to reach. You know, you you explained you explained a, a an example to me of devices you created for training to identify um, breast abnormalities. Maybe that would be a good example to, to make concrete for the audience what you mean by the use of touch and sensors. Sure. So... Um, what we did was simulate a variety of breast lumps, and we put them, we got silicon um, breast, all shapes, sizes, colors, and then we put tumors in them, some benign cystic tumors and some hard tumors, and we put them in different locations, superficial, deep, and we then put a sensor matrix. Um, at the base of the model. And we've collected data from thousands of physicians, all different specialties. And again, so that's my mode. I want to get the data from the experts and then set specific criteria for those who are training so that they know when they are doing it right and and they get a score, something concrete back. Um and before this, there was nothing. You could just practice on the models and everyone, you know, the goal was to find the mass. And if you didn't find it, then, you know, you just keep practicing. Well, what we found is that with the sensor in its position and, it, and the tumors that we had, we found that there is a force threshold by which if you don't have that as your average force around the tumor or on a patient that has a tumor, you're going to miss the lesion. What was more interesting was that we found about 15% of practicing physicians don't apply enough force to find a lesion. So, of course, when you test the quote-unquote experts, you're going to find that some of them actually really are not, um, and they can use feedback, but then you still get the metrics. Um, and so, of the, you know, the thousand physicians that did four patients, did exams on four patients, the average force was approximately 10 newtons. Um, around the tumor, and that's the amount of force that you need to apply for um, a tumor that's on the chest wall. And for the first time, we had a number. There was never a number in the medical field, um, but also it was in the simulated environment. But we now know that there are metrics uh, for this particular exam. The other thing, outside of force, kinematics matters in terms of what you do at your fingertips. So some people are rubbers, <laughs> meaning they rub the tissue either in a circle or back and forth. Others do this sort of up and down movement, like a padding movement. Some people use one hand, some people use two hands, um, but there's rubbers, patters. And then there's a group of people that do this piano fingers movement. And it turns out if you're a piano, piano fingers person when you're doing the breast exam, as the search mode, you are four times less likely to find a lesion. 
So you said that along the way, you, and this is obviously part of what you've just described, is that you could use this technology approaches to t- not just to teach, but to test, just to look at physicians in practice and say, are you know, are you still doing this right or did you ever do it right? And that that has been an interesting experience because it it raises a lot of political issues. It, it raises a lot of trust issues. Um, you know, what is the what is that transformation been like? Well, I mean, the, the, and I understand it. I mean, if you when you look at how we've used data in the medical profession, it's always been high stakes, even the medical organization. So you take your board exam. If you don't pass, then you don't get board certification, and it's difficult, almost impossible to get a job. You can't practice your craft. So it's high stakes. That's a huge problem. Also, there are outside organizations that are looking to grade doctors, you know, put a label on them, and and that obviously affects, you know, the patients who seek you out online. They're like, oh, great, you've got bad scores. Well, if you are going to label a doctor with a score, you kind of want to be right. (laughs) <laughs> you, I mean, no, no one goes to school for 20 years and, um, you know, for to school and training, yeah. you know, to do the wrong thing. So what that means is that our training is not perfect. It's not as good as it could be. Um, and then there's no metrics, right? We've all, we all get approved to practice the hands-on portion of medicine by observation. The cognitive part is pencil and paper tests. But, I mean, you've got to, you, you have surgeons who are taking a pencil and paper test. That does not mean that they are holding the scalpel properly or that they know how to reset the tumor. So we are missing the, an assessment of the hands-on portion of medicine, whether it's a breast exam, a knee exam, or a complex operation. We do not have an objective test for that. And for me, if we're going to come up with one, it has to be right. I, I, will, I, I would not be happy making a test that has not perfect metrics, and then we're telling people they can't practice based on my test. That would be a failure. It, it's, um, it's so interesting to me that you're working on sort of this, you know, refining how touch, for example, is evaluated, where, you know, it seems to me there are almost these two constrict, contrasting uses of tech. On the one hand, you know, you're sort of saying, okay, well, how can people refine their use of their, their touch to make more accurate diagnoses? And then there's all these technologies that are trying to obsolete touch to begin with, saying even in the best hands, it's going to be less good than modality X, Y, or Z. It, do, do you find that an interesting contrast? Oh, it's definitely interesting because it's it's <laughs> it's almost using technology to to it actually is using technology to filter out those things that human beings are still the best at doing. And we haven't we have we have sort of chucked away, you know, human diversity of thought and approach because it's too complex and it's inconsistent and we want to go with the consistent robot. Well, unfortunately, you actually can't make the best robot if you actually haven't studied the best humans. If you haven't quantified them, you haven't put it to numbers and metrics. And then even after you do that, I think that there are complex situations that don't always fit regular protocols. And that's where 
the human mind comes in because we have pattern recognition, we have flexibility, and we have an ability to pull together bits of information and come up with an option that may not have been programmed into the robot yet. So speaking of programming, you've been uh, really trained as a physician, as an educator throughout your career. Now you're also thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, thinking about how do you turn these things I've created into products that could be commercialized. What is the the biggest challenge that you think about in making some of those transitions? Uh, well, the first and biggest challenge is time. Um, I mean, balancing between my clinical responsibilities and learning business and spending time with my, my business team. Um, and then the other one, obviously, is just the experience and meeting people, right? You've got to meet the right people that you know, believe in, in, in your mission, your passion and ideas, and then, you know, partner with you to, to bring some of these ideas to fruition. And obviously you want it to, the first thing that you focus on, you want it to be a success. So I am working with my team and we're, we've gone through several business bootcamp startups and things like that. And, you know, it's just been amazing. And I know hundred percent, I don't want to be a CEO. I want to partner with someone um, because I think all of my ideas come daily from my clinical practice and understanding the hospital system. And then the minute that I leave that 100%, then I'm an outsider. And you, you have to be able to be on the inside to change medicine. That, I mean, that actually leads to the next and the last topic I want to ask you about is uh, being an outsider is, is the role of women in tech and STEM. I know you're very, very dedicated to advancing women in these fields one of the things you've said is that you love to mentor people. And I'm wondering that what you think women who are aspired to do the kinds of things you do, uh, what you wish they knew that, you know, or, or maybe what you wish you had been told early in your career that you try to pass on to them now early in their career. It's, it's I, don't, I, I don't want to say it like the wrong way, but it's learning. It's how to play the game, right? Recognizing what it is. You can either decide that you're going to fight against it and not welcome. That's a, you know, that's bringing some learning and enlightenment from one perspective. But once you decide that you want to be in the game, you can't, you can't fight and play the game at the same time because they require different knowledge base and you're received differently. So if you're going to play the game, put the jersey on, understand the rules. Even if you hate them, you've got to stay in the game. Right. I mean, I want to. I want to hear this in Hamilton. I I never saw Hamilton. Oh my gosh! There's a whole song in a room where it happens. You got more than you gave. And I wanted what I got. When you got skin in the game, you stay in the game. But you don't get a win unless you play in the game. Oh, you get love for it. You get hate for it. You get nothing if you wait for it. Wait for it. Wait. God help and forgive me. I want to build something that's gonna outlive me. What do you want, Bert? What do you want, Bert? You stand for nothing, Bert. What do you fall for? If someone wants to take me on a date, I'll definitely go. But I've never seen it. At least it said the same thing to me. I was like, I didn't know that that's what's being said in Hamilton. But you, you got to play the game. It's like, great. I want to I wanna be a baseball player. I want to hit home runs. But I hate running bases. Really? No, you have to run the bases. That could be the stupidest thing ever. You cannot criticize it. You cannot fight it, and you can't decide that you're going to sit out and not do it. Play the game. Win. Love it. That is a great way to end. It's not about you. It's about the team, and you need to understand who your team members are, how to promote them, 
how to how to have tolerance of different points of views, and you can't take everything personal. I, Shouldn't take anything personal. I think that's great, Carla. I, it's I just love people it. trying to communicate. Thank you so much uh, for your passion and. And that message too. I loved. I loved this conversation. It was really a lot of fun. Fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Today's guest, Carla Pugh, is speaking to us from somewhere near Stanford University. As David and I sit here in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, and by the way, Carla did come back and tell us that the last thing she built from scratch was a club foot simulator device using a baby she bought from a toy store. A baby doll, I assume, not a real baby. Um, love talking to her. She's such a powerhouse, and, and I think her focus on changing culture and working with culture is as important as all of the science and technology that she knows so well. Oh, my gosh. I mean, if you look at sort of the, the such a great adult manifestation of the sort of the, of what the maker movement at its best hopes to right. cultivate, I mean, you basically have someone who as a kid was a maker and now total doer. Right. It's incredible. It is very cool. Wow. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to Metadata for their sponsorship today. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. Peace out. Peace out.